Hi, I'm Mike Lesseter from Farm Equipment, No-Till Farmer, and Precision Farming Dealer Magazine. Welcome to the newest episode in How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. Today we're sitting down at the farm show with two generations of Kinsey Manufacturing, founder John Kinzenbaugh and daughter and president Susie Kinzenbaugh-Veach. Kinsey, a shortened version of Kinzenbaugh's last name, was founded in rural Iowa in 1965. They backed you in the corner, what are you gonna do? We came back after the jury gave us the award on the green battle and I stood up on the balcony and addressed, I don't know, 150 employees. And I just told them what had happened. They said, now we know that we can assemble more rows than they claim they could do in a day with our workforce. So we're gonna get the message across that if they have more trouble, we'll build their row units too. And that employees really got a kick out of that fact that I told him, you know, we could build theirs too. That's founder John Kinzenbaugh recalling his dramatic legal fight against John Deere between 1977 and 84. Kinsey's legal team was outnumbered by Deere 10 to 1, yet still emerged victorious in a David versus Goliath type appeals court battle. If you haven't already read Kinzenbaugh's book, 50 Years of Disruptive Innovation, you're missing out on a tremendous American story. My autographed copy from John is dated July 30th of 2015, and I like the book so much that our farm equipment magazine published a full chapter on the rear fold planter and battle that ensued. You can find it online at www.farm-equipment.com slash Kinsey Battle. The story of Kinsey is another great American success that started with a 21-year-old with $5 to his name, who got $5,000 in credit and opened a repair shop. Today, Kinsey has 30 acres of under-roof facilities and nearly 900 employees worldwide. To put this Iowa manufacturer, located in the 3,000 population town of Williamsburg, into perspective, considering these numbers, seven truckloads of steel delivered each day, laser cutters automatically process 22,000 pounds of steel each weekend, a powder coat line that's almost a mile long, and 40,000 active part numbers to maintain. Known for its blue-colored grain carts and planters, Kinsey wowed the global ag industry with its autonomous project demonstration in 2011 and its reinvestment in a state-of-the-art production facility, which is even open for tours. And during final studio work for this podcast episode, Kinsey made big news again that it is entering the tillage market for the first time in 2018 via a licensing agreement with Dagelman Industries. Before we cut to the interview with John and daughter Susie, who has been with the company full-time since 05 and was named president in 2016, I'd like to give props to GKN Off-Highway Powertrain, the sponsor who made this series possible. So here we go, my side-by-side -side conversation with John Kinzenbaugh and Susie Veach of Kinsey Manufacturing. When someone says, what does Kinsey Manufacturing do? How would you answer that question? Well, I think the standard would be that we, we build agricultural equipment, and then we go beyond that in that we build grain carts and we build planters. We pioneered the grain cart concept in 1971, and when I go down the road and I see all these other grain carts out there, uh, it's because uh, the grain cart is not what you call terribly difficult to uh, build one, do the same thing. And so, but I can look at them and say, you know, that was the first grain cart that had uh, 
large high flotation tires and it unloaded itself in less than three minutes onto a truck. It was the go-between from the combine to the truck and that concept caught on and the, the first year or two it was, well that, that'll never work, that pulls too hard on and on it went to within five years everybody was starting to need one. So the grain cart was where it began. And then the second one it would be the planter where nobody folded a planter, everybody loaded it on a trailer. If it got beyond, a, uh, beyond an eight row, they loaded it on a trailer and hauled it in waste. And so we showed the whole industry, including the farmers, how to fold a planter. And that's where things took off. In what year was that? That was 75 when I built the first planter. 71 on the first grain cart, 75 on the first planters. And then uh, from there it was other models. And the first, the, the welding business got off the ground and in what year was that? That was December 10th of 1965, welding and repair. Take us back and tell us about that day and, and what led up to you hanging out your own, own I business. I come home from the Army. I wanted to, to go into the into business and my first thought was to probably something ag, but I, I like to fix machinery, weld it, repair it, overhaul it, whatever it needed. So our goal was to open sometime in December. We started in uh, October and worked through November getting the, the building ready, bought an old uh, bought an old building for $2,000. I had uh, $3,500 worth of uh, borrowed money that I bought tools and equipment with and we were ready to open up on the 11th of December but a good local fella brought, his wife brought in a loader frame that was broken and begged me to fix it because he needed it to do chores the next morning. So I did a $15 weld job with uh, December the 10th, 1965, on the ticket. So that when when you started that out, were you thinking it was going to be kind of job shop to take what work comes in, or were you going to focus on a certain area? You know, it kind of uh, was interesting how it, it slipped up on me because my first thought, year prior, I talked to my uncle about opening a hardware store because I liked bolts and hardware and log chains and number nine wire and farmer supplies. And I was even missing it because my real expertise was probably just to take something, look at it, and fix it. And it didn't dawn on anybody uh, that I had that special knack to do that. So I just stumbled into it and changed the direction that fall to welding and repair. And we didn't do any advertising. We just got ready and opened the doors and we never had a, a day we didn't have something to do. What kind of work were you doing in, in those days? Oh, guy been to break a wagon tongue and he'd bring it in, I'd fix it. If he lost a wheel off a wagon, I might put a new spindle in it. If he bent something up, I'd straighten it out and repair it. And then, then it led to uh, overhauls and working on engines, and diesel engines, and I worked on trucks, tractors, anything that had an engine and needed mechanical work. The real first product was actually repowering a John Deere tractor. And we were putting, uh, we're taking out a 130 horsepower engine and putting in the Detroit diesel, which is about 300 horse. And we could go out and really make a plow move. And uh, we got to pull an anhydrous ammonia for a local fertilizer dealer right there across the road from me. And we got to doing that and I needed a better toolbar. And so I built a pair of 30 foot toolbars. They were uh, 13 knife, 30 foot wide. And then we started building the wagons to pull behind it. We had a uh, 2,000 gallon on an anhydrous wagon, which was unheard of back that day. A well, thousand was plenty, but when we had that kind of power, we put 2,000 gallon on. And so the anhydrous bar was kind of the first, followed the, the repower, and then the anhydrous bar, we built lots of those. 
and then along come the adjustable width plow in 71 and after I got that done I licensed it to, to DMI and then that fall I had to finish up a wagon for a local guy and that was the first drain cart. Mm. We took it out to, to haul corn away from the combine. Susie, what's your earliest memory you have of the company? I probably wouldn't go back to one specific memory just so much as, you know, as kids we were always with my dad when he was doing things, whether it was the weekend or weeknight and he'd go out and get in the bulldozer or go get in the tractor and we just spent hours riding with him. And uh, I know he tells a story about making me a wagon when I was a little girl and and uh, it, he wasn't making it quite fast enough to suit me because in my mind I just thought he'd go get the parts and there it would be and we'd have a wagon, yeah. not something that was a project. So I got the parts all made and I sent her after the tires, which were the, the little tires off of the row marker. And she rolled one of them back and I carried one and I had bent the pan out for this little wagon and I bent the fenders and I had the front end and the tailgate and I had some tubing and she said, Dad, where is this wagon we're building? She couldn't see it. Yeah. We took it home and finished it. Yeah. It wasn't that quite was fast a, enough. I wanted to ride in it, not well, take she, a long time to have it be built. Yeah. So She thought that building a wagon was, was, it was there, seeing it from the from the minute she thought about it but it wasn't it didn't exist she yeah had to get through that concept yeah of course you know i was only probably what seven or if even that um, just didn't understand the process and how things worked uh my end goal was to go for a ride right <laughs> yeah. so but i have a lot of memories of you know we obviously as a family whenever we were out on vacation or we'd stop by and we'd see a dealer and we'd go to farm shows and the business was just very much a part of our lives and so i've always known it as far as being around it since I was a little kid and always enjoyed the people that we met, the people we interacted with as a result of being a part of the business. John, when, when did you know that you had a serious enterprise that was going to really change the ag equipment world? When, when did that start to come into focus for you personally? Probably in the late uh, 70s after I was uh, privileged to, to pay some income tax. I, I started with $3,500. Nine years later, I was $100,000 in debt and I hadn't paid any income tax yet. And then in the 10th year, I made enough money to pay taxes. From that point on, it, it took off. And that 10th year would have been 75. And I started, things started to grow from the planter, more wagons. We had some other little products in there, spray cart, and uh, we quit doing the repowering at that point and concentrated on manufacturing planters and wagons. So was that about that 10-year mark, you were profitable, you were thinking we can put the pedal down and, and, and make this company into something special? Well, I guess that if you, if you don't have profit, the rest of it goes away pretty fast, and the only reason I lasted nine years without making any money was because the banker was kind of locked in. The banker was a good friend of my dad and, and knew dad was honest and it never occurred to him to have dad co-sign the note. So I bought it, borrowed that first on my signature and we kept going after that. Mm -hmm. And I'd go back and borrow more and sign it and kept going. There was a point in there where the banker was scratching his head thinking, I don't know how we're going to get this money back, but he didn't dare pull the plug or he knew he'd lose it all. So he, he toughed it out. On the, on the manufacturing side, the, the key milestones where you made significant 
investment in facilities and tools. And could you run through that for me when when you made those big investments? Well, the first thing I needed was a a shear and a break because I had been borrowing, renting, borrowing, using a couple of other guys' machinery and equipment, and one guy fabricated the wagon pieces and charged me way too much, and I borrowed another guy's and built them myself, but he was 50 miles away, and so then I decided I had to have a shear and a break, so I set out to build them. I couldn't afford to buy them. So I built a 12-foot shear that would cut at least quarter-inch plate and ended up finding out after I got it built that it was tough enough to cut half-inch plate. So I had the shear, and then things started to go on, and I didn't have time to build the press brake. So I bought a little 100-ton Wisconsin uh, Forcemaster press brake. And uh, it cost me, well, I, I, I'm rusty now on the numbers, but I suppose it cost me 40000 $50,000, which I could borrow that at that time. And uh, it was also 12 foot long. And I was out in the plant the other day, and we're still using it. It's 40 plus years old. One of the things that I did, I knew some of the story of old Henry Ford and his assembly line, and I knew when I was building grain carts, I'd back it in and build the frame, and then I'd pull it outside and build another frame. I kept doing that. And then we'd bring them back in and, and put the axle under it or whatever. And then we'd, then we'd set the tub on it. And then we'd put the augers in it. And the time lost, if that workstation had to pull it outside and by the time they pulled the next one in, they lost that time. We better bet they aren't going to gain it back at the end of the day because they didn't have to. But when I heard to me that we can put that on a, on a winch, I laid a piece of uh, angle iron on the floor with a, with a point up and made clips on it. And I'd bolt that to the floor every season. And we had a steel roller on the hitch of the frame. And on the back, I had a pair of heavy-duty hard rubber uh, tires like you would have on a wagon or what around the plant factory rollers and we start winching that through and we'd hook one behind the other and that steel roller grounded that frame so it would come past the guy welding and he could do his job and then it'd go on and if he didn't keep up it'd get down the line too far and the guys would say hurry up get done i want you know and that put the urgency to getting it done and we we doubled our production just overnight made a game out of them. The guys weren't hustling and hurrying. That's one thing that surprises some people that come to Kinsey that have never been that there before. You know, today when somebody comes and tours, they get to go through our innovation center and see the history we're talking about as well as the new things that we have. But we're, we're continuing that on. That's not in, ending because innovation is one of the key drivers of who we are. And then when they go up into the factory and see the state-of-the-art technology that we have applied there. You know, we've brought in a lot of great people that come from outside of ag, where, you know, maybe manufacturing that was already ahead of ag, and they've been able to apply core principles to what we're doing to make us very efficient in what we do. And, you know, when you think about a planner, how complex it is, where years ago, they used to go down the line one right after the other, where they were batch built, and one was essentially like the next, and then the next, and then you'd run another batch of like things. Well, today, whether it's a 4900 or a 3600, whatever is going, being built, the one behind it is probably going to be very different than the one in front of it. And so we've changed a lot of our processes to be able to do more of what we call cellular building or, you know, building it to order as needed versus just building it at, at a base level and then the dealer having to do a lot of assembly on the other end. Because dealers, 
want to be able to take that planner and do very little to it and deliver it to the dealer so it's ready to go. And so we've, we've advanced a lot over the years in our abilities to now build a very complex product in multiple, many, many different configurations and have it pretty much built to the end customer's use when it ships on the truck to go to the dealer. If you thought about it, you know, the dealer might sell two, three, or four of a certain model. Every year it's a learning curve to assemble it and we made changes. But if we put it together at the factory, we know that we can do them uh, a lot faster because we do them over and over and over again. And so we can save the dealer a lot of money by uh, assembling it for him. Plus he's more anxious to sell it because he doesn't have to put three weeks work into it, putting it together. Right. And we didn't end up with a lot of things put together wrong. And, and so we've catered more and more to that. Mm -hmm. This big planter over here that came in is uh, 60 feet wide and it has 47 rows on it. And we brought it in here on one load, all just like you see, it was all assembled. Mm -hmm. And that was unheard of yeah. 30 years ago, 20 years ago. You, you guys approach manufacturing differently than much of the rest of the industry, right? And we're very vertically integrated. We've, we've done that for many years and not all of our competitors do that. And that's one thing that makes our products stand apart. But yeah, there's a lot of things that we do and that we do right here in the U.S. because it's important to us as, as much as we can. You know, obviously you have to make good business decisions and good business sense about what we do. But for the most part, um, we bring in the raw steel, we fabricate it, we weld it, we paint it, we assemble it, and put it together and, and ship it. So it's exciting to be able to follow a product through from the level of raw steel that gets shipped in on a truck and then see it go through that yeah. factory process. And you have the control over the quality and the delivery, all, the, all those things yeah. are part yeah. of the, the philosophy yeah. behind it. Absolutely, that. because that's part of what the Kinsey brand is known for, is the quality and the durability. And it's interesting, I've traveled around the world a lot, especially in the last 10 years as we're growing our global business. And it doesn't matter if I talk to a farmer in the Ukraine or Russia or in Williamsburg, Iowa, the farming is, you know, the, the business of farming is very similar. You know, how they practice it may vary in some degree, but as far as how they're getting the seed in the ground is all pretty much the same. And they say, you know, what stands apart about Kinsey is it's a durable product and it's easy to use. And of course it, it makes them productive and gets their crop in the ground and the narrow window of time that a farmer has to get the crop in the ground. He mentioned the rear fold planter. There's some of those early planters that are still out there being used. And I'm sure back then he never would have dreamed that that many years we'd still have those products out there, but they're just that well built. For 42 years, 41 years, 40 years. And in the last two days, I've talked to probably one guy back near home and another guy, two or three guys here, mentioned the rear folds. Mm -hmm. And you'd think it's unheard of, yeah. something that old. One of the things that, talking about the history, and I'm gonna encourage everyone who's paying attention to this podcast to read read your book, because it's, it's outstanding and, and really a great American story. But Thank you. what are the biggest defining moments of the history of Kinsey Manufacturing? I think the first thing comes to mind was the day that I met up with a banker who was actually the, the second bank. I'd outgrown the little bank and had been above and beyond his abilities for several years. And I was trying to borrow from two different banks. And finally, uh, a local fellow who was uh, a friend of mine and was very well known and had, had a lot of backing 
said, well, yeah, I'll co-sign your note. Go back to your little bank and borrow and I'll co-sign it. When I got to the bank that next morning, I told the banker what I was wanted to do. And he says, you know, he said, uh, if he's got confidence like that in you, he said, we probably should too. We can go ahead and loan you that money and not get him involved. And I said, well, I thought you were against your limits. Well, we can send that over to the big bank called Correspondent Banking. And that was the beginning, uh, that was the end of my financial. I never, ever, after that, ever went looking for money, begged for money, ever after. We're, we're in that first 10 years, every time I turned around, I was trying to figure out where I could borrow more money. I borrowed from local uh, farmers a little bit, a few thousand here or there, and I borrowed from one old guy south of town. And when I went back and paid him three years later with interest, he cried because nobody ever pays me back. Everybody thinks it's their right to, to rob him, I guess. Mm. And I had another lady in Illinois that loaned me some money when I, because her husband had died uh, doing some of the repower work. She loaned me a little money and another old farmer south of town loaned me money. And it was really fun to pay him back. But that, that was the first thing that comes to mind was to solve the financial needs. But you can't, you can't just go out and borrow money and throw money at it. You have to have it ready to go. And I didn't borrow money to waste it. I borrowed money to make it work. Mm -hmm. So that was the first defining moment. And that was 1974. The next one would have been uh, probably 80, uh, 84 when I occurred to me to raise a planter and rotate it. Just opened it wide open where I could put 15 inch rows on a 30 inch planter, 12 row planter, could plant. 23 rows of beans on 15s. The 16-row uh, planter could plant uh, 31 rows or 32 now, 15s on beans and 30 on corn. And that was the that was the biggie on product. I remember having a bunch of uh, six-row planters welded up and ready to paint. And we were trying, we'd, we'd painted the four and six-row planters the year before, we painted them black, the frame black, and put we could put our unit on it or whoever, but our row unit was black, so we tried a black frame and it just got chalky and looked terrible. So I'm scratching my head trying to decide what to do, and should we paint it green, should we paint it red, what color? And one of the guys said, well, you know, our wagon is very uh, accepted and successful as blue, why don't you paint them blue? And just that quick. I said, hang them on the line, paint them blue. Mm -hmm. And we've never looked back. And I think right now, if you took that planter out there and painted it any other color, it looked terrible. If there's anything that I would say we have to sell besides our quality and, and all that is the name and the blue color. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, pieces of the book that was inspiring is you were, you had some tough times and you big business was staring you down and you had the faith and the courage to move forward when other people might have caved in or, or walked away. What, what can you tell us about what that time was like? Well, I think that, that I had a, a good attorney representing me in that John Deere battle and they were out to put us out of business. They they didn't like the idea that I was, was encroaching on their uh, planter, their product line, and all of a sudden I was buying too many of their row units. We had a, a court order against them to sell. They sold them to us for two years. 
and I started putting them on by the thousands and they had another just totally cut us off. So then we built our own uh, road unit and got that off the ground and uh, then we had another battle where a, a company copied our raise and rotate and they weren't very successful with it but they convinced the, the judge who had no idea what a patent was let alone the difference and she let them off the hook and so they ended up with their own rotate uh, planner it didn't it didn't pan out it is not what the farmer wanted the next time we so the next thing we knew we had a company that said they hauled us all the way out east after this book was written and we went through a, a major battle over a stupid vacuum meter, the old Monosem technology, which had already been around for 35 years. So we had to go out there and just literally take that thing apart and show the courts and the jury and the judge that, that this meter was this technology and we didn't infringe anybody. When we got done, there was, there was four questions about the patent and there was four questions about whether we had infringed it. First four questions, did Kinsey infringe their patent? And the jury said no, all four questions. Then they said the four patents that they in question, were they valid? Four more no's, they weren't valid. So we walked away from that. But if I told you how many millions we spent fighting that, you'd say, well, who really won that? It wasn't them, and it sure wasn't us either, because we spent millions, and the attorneys are the one that win. And that's another one of my, don't get me started any further, that's, that's enough said, but boy do I have a tough time with, when I see one of these guys advertising, the, you got a sore toe, call us, we'll, we'll get you some money, and that's all it's about, money, money, money. So back when the, when the, the rear fold uh, planter suit was going on and, and you were a much smaller company, did, was there ever any doubt you were going to, to get in the ring and, and fight that? No, you just, they backed you in the corner, what are you going to do? I wasn't the kind of person that never had a bully necessarily do it, but I learned a long time ago, you don't let him back in the corner, you call his bluff on it. You really rallied the employees around that moment because everything was on the line. Yep. And, yep. you know, maybe tell them about the meeting you had with them all, basically saying, are, are we in this together or, you know, how Well, you we on? came back after the jury gave us the award on the, on the green battle, and I stood up on the balcony and addressed, I don't know, if it was 150 employees and I just told them what had happened. And then I said, you know, uh, Deer needs to know that if, if they can't build, they were hiding behind it, couldn't produce enough. They didn't have the money, they didn't have the, the parts, and they didn't have the facility. Three excuses not to produce row units. And I told them employees, I said, now we know that we can assemble more rows in a day than they claimed they could do with our, with our workforce. So, we're going to get the message across that if they have more trouble, we'll build their row units too. And that, that turn, the employees really got a kick out of that fact that I told them, you know, we could build theirs too. When they had a strike, we offered to build their row unit, and they sent some guys in. But then they were afraid, I think they were afraid to admit, and they, they tiptoed around it. But yeah, I think ultimately, though, you know, our people really rallied around the fact that we're in this this battle that seems insurmountable because we were very small by comparison. I think the book titles it David versus Goliath. And, mm -hmm. uh, but to see the employees rally around, to see the community, and, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people were praying for us through that battle. And the ultimate 
glory goes to God out of that because there were just things that happened in that that we never could have orchestrated with our own human minds, but he, he literally led us through that battle and gave us the victory and allowed us to move on. Yes, it was a difficult time and the company and everything was on the line, but we really saw we can we can prevail through, you know, all of those around us working together with the Lord's help and we've moved forward and we've grown a lot over the years. And, um, you know, I think too, in the, in the face of adversity, adversity makes you strong no matter who you are as a human being whatever trial or adversity you're facing you learn through that and you learn okay am i gonna am i gonna stand up and and uh go out and, and fight the battle or am i gonna give up and and we did and we won and and we've continued on and um it's just it's been exciting too to see how even in the last 10 to 15 years that i've been back in the company obviously i've grown up in it but to see us continue to grow and continue to innovate and to lead the market in various planting innovations and, and to know the great products that we have that our name is on. You know, it's very different for, I think, a publicly traded organization. And, and Dad's always said, you know, the name on the product is not the name of the man typically leading the company, but our, our last name is on it. And so we want it to live up to the expectations of quality and durability and, again, those early things that we talked about. So, learn a lot about your own people during a situation like yeah. that, right? Yeah. And all the suppliers and dealers who were letting yeah, you know they absolutely. were in your corner. You did a very good job of thanking those people in the book. We had a, a supplier, numerous suppliers that came in when we were told that, well, our competitor, we can't get this, we can't get this, and we just can't, we don't have the money, we don't have the parts. Blah, blah, there's a shortage of this, shortage of that. You know, we went down the line, and since we had to copy that thing bolt by bolt, nut for nut, piece for piece, to be successful, we didn't dare deviate. We bought every one of those parts except one that was supposedly, they refused to sell, it was proprietary. I'll never forget the company. It was a little company that had a bearing and a sprocket. And they said, no, we, we built that for deer, we won't, we won't break that agreement. We went down the road and found another guy to make the part for us and got beyond it. And within two years, we found that the major company had breached that trust and had gone out to another supplier and they come back begging us to buy that bearing that they wouldn't sell it to us two years prior. So even that company bet wrong. Right. Yeah, right. We'll get back to the Kinsey story in a moment, but first I wanted to say thanks to GKN, the sponsor of this podcast. To learn more about how GKN improves the efficiency, safety, and increased productivity of today's farm machinery, visit www.gknoffhighwaypowertrain.com. Also want to say a few words here about Kinsey in Williamsburg, Iowa, which is just 30 miles west of Iowa City on I-80. The next time you find yourself in that area, make certain you give yourself a couple of hours to visit Kinsey's facility there. When you see those vertically stacked green carts emerging from the Iowa countryside, you have the opportunity to see something really special. First, you can tour the factory via a golf cart tour that takes you through the tunnels and up onto the production floor to see manufacturing at its finest. And you can also visit the Kinsey Innovation Center, a newly expanded museum-like experience. Everyone with even a passing interest in farming, manufacturing, or business will love it. I'd encourage you to go. And now, back to the story of Kinsey Manufacturing. 
We were talking about the dealers earlier, and so in, in the early days, did you go? Did was were you going direct at a time? Yes, okay. we did. We sold. In fact, we used to sell the wagons with just a flat cash reward if they sold one. And we had dealers. 10, 15 years later, when we went to the dealer structure, the dealer get a discount. He'd give it away. Give it away here, and the dealers get so mad. Said, "I don't know why you don't just go back and give us an, a $500 allotment for selling a wagon." And they're all out there the same. They can't cut the price, see. But uh, they give away to 500, but that's it. But uh, that was how that got started. Before we had dealers, we, we sold a few dealers in for $500. But originally, we sold all the wagons and all the planters direct to the farm. In 1980 was when we first started putting in some dealers. Yeah, you know, uh, with the dealer network, it's, it's exciting. Uh, you know, obviously, we've grown that over the years. And every year for probably the last, oh, six or seven years, we go out annually and deliver market share awards to the top dealer in every district. But the, the one thing that we hear very often from dealers is that the Kinsey brand is very profitable to them. And that's one reason they choose to sell Kinsey is obviously they have to make a profit, but then to have the brand name and the quality and the reputation that we have behind it, there's going to be less and less dealers, but so long as there's dealers out there um, that aren't getting too much pressure from one brand or another to not take on other products, uh, they very much desire to have the Kinsey brand. They hear from other dealers, hey, the Kinsey line is a very profitable line. Mm -hmm. I want to have that line. See, we don't put dealers on top of dealers. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, as a whole, the, the Kinsey line is very profitable, and then the Kinsey products hold a resale value. And we, we see that time and time again, whether it's at auctions, he goes to a lot of auctions, just was at one. So, you know, th those again are all great things for our dealer network because we need our dealers to sell and service our product, but it's gotta be a good good business for them to be in as well. Right, right, because there, there is more pressure today than there was a few generations ago, right? But yeah. You have to, have to have that to withstand that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, when, when you look at, there's there's really three of us that are major players here in the U.S. The, the red guys, the green guys, and us, and we're number two in market share here in the U.S. And so in order for us to stay in that position and in order for the farmer to put a blue planter behind a green or a red tractor, we have to have the innovative features that he desires and, and the, the planter that gets the job done in, in the narrow window of time. He's got to get the crop in the ground and of course provides value to him as, as he trades and then buys a new one. I want to talk about your your path to the to the company here. So if you can kind of take me back from um, you know high school when you started working in the in the company and where you went after and came back. If you can kind of encapsulate that timeline for us. You're gonna yeah, so you're gonna I, you're gonna tell him a, my story about. I know why you're you're <laughs> laughing because you're gonna tell the story of my first job when you know I turned 14 and was able to actually have a job in the company and my job you know at the time five dollars an hour 40 hours a week yeah and at that time you know in Pretty the accounting, math, right? yeah. accounting yeah. department they had a lot of paper that everything was paper you know we weren't automated as much as we are today and literally there were stacks of paper that had to be shredded that was confidential stuff that we couldn't just throw in the trash can so my job, one of the main jobs was shredding paper, you know, and doing a lot of the grunt work as a first job. So I'll let him tell the story because he'll tell it better. <laughs> well, end of the, she had to wait two weeks to get a check for the first week because it was delayed. So she gets that $200 check 
but it was only a hundred and some dollars. Well, where's the rest of my money? Now, she sat at the supper table and we talked openly about taxes, withholding taxes, all those different things, but it didn't affect her, right? Because she didn't think it came out of hers. <laughs> she was expecting $200. Yeah. Yeah. Teachable moment. That's right, right? teachable moments, yeah. 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 But, you know, so I guess growing up in the company and being involved in it from a kid and, and then those summers from the time I was 14, being able to work out there up through college. And then when I got into college, I interned in other companies just to get other experiences as I got later in college. But those early years, I eventually rotated throughout pretty much every area in the organization, which was good too, to just understand and not do one thing. And I always thought one day I might come back to the business, but dad always said, if you're gonna come back, you need to go be successful somewhere else, which was good. I appreciated that. And I think our employees appreciated it too. And for me, it gave me so much more appreciation than when I did come back full time, when I came back in 2005 then after having been in college and worked for Caterpillar and had a great experience at Caterpillar. Mm -hmm. But you appreciate so much more what you have when you have a viewpoint of something else. Yeah. And um, I worked with great people there, but nothing holds a candle to the great people that we have in our business. Again, just all the way through uh, from our employees, to our dealers, the whole network. and. It's fun too to come back and as an adult, you know, those people, those early dealers and early employees that have been there many years that I remember as a kid, that remember me as a kid, and, um, and then to come back and, um, of course, be involved at the level that I am now. So it's been, it's been a fun journey and, and we've, we've grown a lot over the last 10 years. Of course, the last couple of years we've been in this down ag market, but again, we talked about adversity earlier. We figure out, okay, what do we need to do now? To, to go and grow again and, mm. and move in a forward motion. And it's those times that uh, you have the unexpected that really makes you think through and reapproach and try different things. And uh, again, we've got a great team because it's much bigger than either he or I could run without the great team of people mm. in the areas of expertise that they have and they advise us with and we work together and make decisions. So uh, she'd been back about 12, 12 years, years, but I told her, when I got 50 years in, she could become president. Mm. And she didn't forget that. How do you think each of you are similar in your approach and how do you think you're different? Yeah, well, obviously there's a lot of, um, I think I've learned a lot just over the years by listening to him, you know, and, and even that we talked earlier about the dinner table conversation, you know, those things that you learn to critically think as a kid. And um, so we were always challenged to think business-minded like even as kids because that's what we talked about at the dinner table mm -hmm. and the tremendous respect that I have for what he's done and, and what he's built. And then, you know, it, it, it was to, to come back in and be involved. And, you know, we joked about the president title, but it's like, do I really want that title? Because that's, in a way, that's a, that's a really big responsibility and, and elevating my role even even more so at least by title you know obviously there's a lot of things that i've been doing and that hasn't changed and i'll keep doing but um to be able to work alongside him and learn and you know as we have different scenarios of things happen to be able to have his eye of well you know i've got this many years of wisdom experience to draw upon that i obviously haven't had but every year now that i'm back and the longer that we work together there's more that you start feeling comfortable with, like, yeah, that's how dad would handle it. 
and that's how I know he'd want us to make this decision as we work together because, you know, his role now, um, he's, he's able to take time to enjoy some of his hobbies and what he does so he doesn't have to be involved at the level of detail in the day-to-day -day like I am. But yet, you know, when we make major decisions, we include him and uh, he very much has a say in those major decisions. But there's a lot of day-to-day -day decisions that add up that could become major that you really have to make sure we are aligned as owners mm -hmm. in the decisions that I'm making. And I'm saying, okay, how, how would he think through this and what would he want me to do in this situation? So in that way, I think um, I'm wired very similar to him in that, you know, the ability to critically think and to think through and what's right, you know, and, and in some scenarios, they're not black and white. You know, some, whether it's involving individual, you know, it might be an employee situation where it's not black and white and you have to make a fair decision, you know, something you wouldn't do for one that you wouldn't do for all. But that's the difference of being private owners is, is right. being able to be involved in people's lives. And then, um, you know, obviously his area has been he loves the engineering. And if he's going to pop in, you will usually find him down with the engineers or out in the proto shop and um, you know, and I enjoy the day-to-day -day business side. And I think you'd say probably over the years you didn't enjoy some of the day-to-day -day administration stuff that I do. So that's where we mm -hmm. complement each other well. And then at the same time, he's, he's worked really hard to mentor the team of engineers we have. So, you know, someday when he's not here, it's not, oh my goodness, he's not here, what do we do? But they've been mentored and we've, we've got a great team down there and a lot of expertise and and they also know how he thinks when we design product and, and again carrying that quality reputation forward and into the future and into the second generation mm -hmm. and she's got the work ethic and the tenacity to hang in there and do that stuff where a lot of people would be scared out i think if she's learned to grab on and grab a hold and do it but we also have both learned to surround ourselves with people that can do the things we can't do and if you're afraid to hire somebody that that's smarter than you are you got a problem mm -hmm. and if i needed somebody in the accounting we hired people that could do that and uh, we've had good uh, good people and advisors from the accounters accounting people the attorney some of those we've had hiring employees that can design and do tooling i i'm pretty uh, I'd be a pretty good tool maker now, but I learned that from employees. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that I'd be pretty good at now that I've learned by watching or hiring people that can do it. So you surround yourself with people that can get the job done. And uh, if they can't get the job done, you also got to be willing to part company because mm -hmm. you can't keep them all around. Once in a while, you find a, a dead wood, a, a, an interesting thing that, that I always tell. I did it just here a while back. I said, if you want to know whether this guy is working or not, you take 10 times at random. You're out here if you're the foreman and you think about it, look and see what Sam's doing. And you see him standing and jawing, and you write that down. And then you wait a day or so and you happen to run into him again and you write down what he's doing. And he's standing and jawing, and you write that down. 10 times you go through that routine. And how many times you catch him standing and talking versus getting the job done is just about what you've got. It's just almost without fail. And we've, we've, uh, we had a guy that was in a position he didn't belong in. I'd been watching it for a long time. The foreman was over his head. He wasn't even paying attention. I pointed it out, told him what to look for. And before I got back to see how he was doing, he'd gone from step one to step two, and he had him back on the line. Mm -hmm. Took him clear off of the job he was doing. 
And I said, and when you do that, you make sure you put him on a job you can measure. Don't give him a job over here beside Sam and Sarah and let their numbers affect his. You get one that he does all by himself and you watch. Mm -hmm. And if his numbers are alright, then fine. But if he's dogging it, you'll know. Yeah. And that's sometimes you got to be tough when you do that. And I've known this guy for 40 years and I hated to put the pressure on, but he can't afford to pay them guys. They, the other thing we find is when you do that with a, with a what I call sometimes dead wood, a lot of the other guys will say, well, it's about time. Hmm. They're sitting there watching this too, but they don't have authority to say anything. And they're just waiting and hoping that you figure it out. Then, yeah. you know, in a business our size, you occasionally have, yeah. have those situations. Happen. And, you know, as, as owners, that's probably one of the biggest challenge that can be the most draining. You know, anybody you talk to that owns a business where there's people involved, when you have when you have those issues, again, for us, fortunately, they're few and far between. But when you have them, they are very draining because, you know, obviously to, to keep a great work environment for the others, you can't not deal with situations. Otherwise, it just creates a, right. a bad environment for even the, the good people that are working really hard. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, a good segue into something I wanted to ask you guys. If someone was coming in and said, Susie, describe the what the culture is like within Kinsey Manufacturing. What are what are the words that pop into your head? Well, that's actually pretty easy because we talk about that with every interview candidate. We talk about it in all-employee meetings. We talk about it in dealer meetings. But our culture is defined by our five core values, you know, integrity, excellence, innovation, customer focus, and mutual respect. And, you know, we asked my dad and mom probably 20 years ago, so... They went on a vacation and, and tasked them with coming back and defining what are the what are the core values that Kinsey was started upon and that are true today. And, and those were the values that they came back with and you know wrote a paragraph about each. Now that's not to say somebody won't have a bad day. We all have bad days, you know. But as a whole, anyone interacting with Kinsey should see those themes exhibited in their interaction. But those core values really are what defines our culture, and that's what we're all about. And um, you know, the, the, we, we hit 50 years two years ago. What's the next 50 years? I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. So long as we're a part of the family, those core values will be a part of our company and, and what we do and who we are. So we're in a succession a transition change like a lot of, a lot of businesses are. And, and uh, John has passed on to you the things that are uh, must-haves for the business moving forward and there'll become a day somewhere down the line where you'll need to pass the, the keys to someone. What are the things that you'll want that if you're writing a letter to your successor, the handful of things that uh, are the non-negotiables that we're going to do business this way. This is how we do it. Yeah, I, I would go back to the core values and I really emphasize integrity because that's one thing that today seems to be lost in our culture as a whole, but as a whole, um, people seem more willing to compromise on integrity. And you know, it's a slippery slope. You do one little thing here and you think, oh, nobody will notice this, but then the, it's like a big snowball that starts getting momentum going down a hill. And we encounter that a lot in our international business because many of the countries that we do business in uh, part of their culture is it's just assumed you're going to do an under-the-table deal and we make it very clear to our dealers internationally we will not do under-the-table deals we will do everything above board and with integrity because that's what we are all about and so um, that would be the thing I would emphasize the most because if you don't have integrity you might as well not have anything else because if people can't trust 
their interactions with Kinsey or with Kinsey employees, then it's pretty much game over no matter how great of a product you have um, or, or how customer focused you are because ultimately if the customer isn't going to trust doing business with us, they'll go elsewhere. And so um, we, we take that really seriously and, and we know that that's an important part of our lives as owners and that's how we want others to interact with us and that's how we want our people to interact with others is to always put that integrity first. As business owners, the, the ultimate challenge is you know, wanting to provide a good place to work for people in the community and, and support the livelihood of families. You know, obviously we, we build a product and we're in business to make money. Yes, there's challenges, whether it's people challenges or, um, you know, you get in a, a legal situation that's a battle and a challenge or whatever it might be. But I think uh, one of the things we always come back to is we're fortunate to have, we believe, the best workforce that we could ever ask for right there in the Midwest. You know, a lot of people that came from farms and understand how the product is used, the end product that they're you know putting together and then a great group of dealer network that really believes in our product and stands behind it and promotes it because you know we can promote our product there locally but it takes dealers to, to expand that footprint and to be able to sell the product and offer the support to the end customer and uh, so there's there's been you know numerous challenges along the way that you'd have with any business but the reward is always looking back and saying hey, you know, not only are we building a great product that's helping to feed the world, but we're also able to provide a great working environment for a bunch of employees, both here in Williamsburg, and then we've got a, a global operation, a factory over in Vilnius, Lithuania, and another workforce over there to be able now to expand that around the world. And even uh, making the move to go from a distributor of our product globally to having dealers globally, and, and now having that factory globally to be able to support the product needs over there. It's exciting to see the growth and the changes and you put a lot of hard work into that and, and you take a risk, but in the end, it's very rewarding to see the, the results of that. A big thanks to John and Susie for their story and also to GKN for helping make this podcast series possible. Check GKN out at www.gknoffhighwaypowertrain.com. Remember to keep up on all the farm equipment industry news by registering for the free daily email at www.farm-equipment.com. Plus, you can receive the next podcast episode the very moment it's completed by signing up to receive the Farm Equipment Podcast on your favorite podcast channel, such as iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, and the others. And a final shout out to our in-house talent here at Lesseter Media, who make these recordings sound well for you. Thanks to Jeff Lazeski and Joe Kinsley. Until next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment, No-Till Farmer, and Precision Farming Dealer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. <laughs>